TED Audio Collective. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. HBR presents. Hi, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Yang Ni, and I'm here with Felix and Mihir. Hey, guys. Hey. How are you? It's freezing outside, and both of you guys are in your sweaters. It's nice. You know, it's always hardest in the fall. Somehow, in January, I feel, if it's like minus 8,000, I've gotten used to <laughs> cold. But the fall, when it first is cooler, it's just it's just cruel. It's I cruel. love it. Oh, I, I love, love the it. novelty of it, though. And the first crisp days are like spectacular. They get your yeah. blood pumping. I know. And you start to think about Thanksgiving. It's going to be great. Thanksgiving is one of those great celebrations. Lots of family and lots of food, which is good. I'm really looking forward to it. Before we get going, the three of us were talking about the mail that we've been getting. Mm, yeah. Just huge, huge thank you to all of you out there. One of the things that we were talking about before we hit record was not only how thoughtful some of the email is, but... The tone with which you guys engage with us, you hear all of this conversation about how toxic the world has become, and then you look at this email, and it's just the opposite. It's so thoughtful. It's so kind. I've just been so struck by it. Yes, and it's not that everyone always agrees, which I love, but that... It's always in the spirit of figuring out, like, what's a useful, helpful way to think about the difficult topics that we think about, which makes it really great to read. And it kind of extends the conversation beyond our conversation, which I really like, too, which makes you feel like you're conversing with our listeners and then also that it's giving rise to conversations because that's what the world needs more of. Yeah. So thank you to everyone. So we have topics for this week. We never really talk that much about personal finance. And so I want to talk about the biggest money mistakes people make. And then here, I know you brought in a topic as well. Yeah. So I thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about the rise of the micro-influencer and whether it's a good thing or not and what its influence is on the marketing landscape. This is a huge trend in marketing right now. Great. So recently, Felix, you were telling me when you were running the MBA program, you helped launch this course taught by one of our colleagues on personal finance. Yes, that's right. And you were talking about how popular it is among our students, even though it addresses what on the surface seem like a bunch of really mundane topics. But maybe that's part of the secret. So when you have conversations with our students about, you know, how to invest in the stock market, there's just amazing how much they know and how much uh, many of them have personal experience also. But then there are these other aspects to more personal finance, like what are the financial implications of getting married? Like, how should you think about buying a house? Is that a good idea? Not such a great idea. In the lives of our students and in our own lives, these are the really big decisions that often matter. And it's also interesting, Felix, because the field of personal finance is populated with so much garbage. And then also the word personal kind of gets hived off, right? Which is these are enormously personal decisions and they're complex psychological decisions. Because these are not like, should you buy a house? It's really about, well... 
wait a second, what does it mean to have a home? And do you need a home now in your life? Or do yeah. you value mobility? So yeah, true. so let me start with this question. Very simple. What do you think are the biggest mistakes young adults make when managing their money? So I'll get started, which is I think the first thing is that people kind of understate the importance of savings. It's not the dollar amounts that you save. It's the habits that you develop as a saver when you're young that end up being the important things over time. So, yes, you should save when you're young because, oh, compound interest and blah, blah, blah. But the real <laughs> reason you should save when you're young <laughs> – sorry, that's a big idea that I just blah, blah away. But the real reason why you save when you're young and when you try to save a fixed percentage is because you develop the habit. And so much of this is about developing good habits. Yeah. So I think that's the number one mistake. I'll give you a couple of others, and it varies by country, but in the U.S., we still have a preoccupation with owning a home, I think. And I think we are fixed on the idea, especially young people, that we should own. And I think that's a mistake for a lot of people. And so they want to own too early, and they undervalue renting. And I think renting at certain times in your life is really powerful and really liberating. And the understanding that those are alternatives, as opposed to, I got to stop renting as soon as possible, <laughs> which is the logic you hear all the time. I think that is kind of problematic. And then the third one mm -hmm. I'll just mention there just briefly is there are so many programs where the government gives you an incentive to save that young people don't take advantage of. So that includes things like employer matches. It includes things like health savings account. It includes 529 for your kids. The first order rule for any saver should just be max out on everything that is tax advantaged and just take that for what it is, which is a boon. I really love the ideas that Mihir just explained. I think the first one about saving, to me, it's often part of a bigger issue of procrastination. You know, no one thinks, oh my God, this is the weekend when I sit down and I think about my financial future. <laughs> that is just like <laughs> not the weekend you ever want to have right ahead of you. And so we're putting off saving. But also, even if you jump over that hump, then the question becomes, oh, do you have a Vanguard account or do you not have an account? And so it's all of these little decisions that then prevent you from doing something that in your heart, you really know this is the right thing to do. And so my advice is always, none of this really matters open some account with one of the big firms and you don't have to do a thousand hours of research right. to figure out who has the lowest fees. Right. And you don't have to think a lot about should you invest in mutual funds or ETFs. Choose some day-targeted fund and just make it a habit. So this is your point, me here. Just make it a habit to put a little bit of money away and don't be deterred by the seeming complexity of making these kinds of decisions. In my experience, many people get stuck by just the multitudes of decisions that you have to make. They also get confused about, they don't observe kind of the rewards very quickly. So, and in a way, if you focus on the dollar amounts, then you won't observe rewards very quickly. It's not about the dollar amounts. It's just about the act. Yes. It's not about the payoff today, but it's about the payoff over time. You know, another thing is I've always been struck by how every big life event creates a financial inflection point. Buying a house, getting married, having kids, 
And it's always struck me how much pressure there is at every one of these big inflection points to buy the bigger house, to have the more extravagant wedding, to put your kids in the most expensive private school. And I think it's so important to really think hard at every single one of those big life events about what's right for you. And in particular, not falling into the trap of buying the kinds of things that demonstrate that you have arrived, that you're doing well, buying into the most expensive zip code, buying that house that has a larger floor area, because those are sort of the simple metrics on which you can compete. So I think in addition to, I I love Mihir's point, owning a house is not a foregone conclusion. In fact, just financially speaking, when you think about how concentrated your investment is in an asset that at least over long historical periods sometimes beats inflation, sometimes doesn't beat inflation, that's a financially a completely not obvious decision. And there's no overarching dominant financial logic that says buying a house is such a great thing to do. I particularly like this idea of young me that you raised of kind of, you know, weddings and housing and education. So first, I think it's so interesting when you kind of make a comparison between a a lavish wedding and a down payment on a house like a significant down payment on a significant house, people don't make that comparison, right? But that's the relevant comparison when you think about starting your life with somebody. And so it's okay to have a lavish wedding if that's what you want, but understand the trade-off, which I think is what people don't often do. I think the other thing I was just going to mention is, you know, ultimately (laughs) housing and education, like you have to get those two things right. A lot of other financial decisions are kind of rounding errors in that context, right? So it's really worth just focusing in on those two and making sure you're good on those two. And I think what people get confused about is they get confused about whether this is consumption or investment. Yeah, so true. And so I think in housing, people underappreciate how much actual consumption is going on and they overestimate the amount of investment. They're like, should I buy in this zip code? Is it good? Prices are going to go up, blah, blah, blah. But I think what you really want to understand with housing is there's an investment component, but it's fundamentally how are you going to live your life and where are you going to live and what does your life look like day to day and is it going to work, (laughs) right? And in some way with education, I think, will there be a payoff to the education for your children? You know, I think in higher ed, I kind of believe there is. Private school, lower K through 12, I'm not so sure there's any evidence of that. And there you're probably consuming. You're probably not investing. (laughs) You're consuming the fact that you like your kids going to that school or whatever it is. But just being truthful with ourselves, I'm not saying it's good or bad. All I'm saying is be truthful with yourself about whether you're investing or whether you're consuming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there any advice out there that you see, quote unquote, experts giving that you just fundamentally disagree with? I mean, the idea that you can know which stocks are going to appreciate, <laughs> which is, of course, what, like 72.5% of all the financial advice industry, which is completely ludicrous. I mean, just think about the logic. If any one of the people you see on TV mm. recommending a particular stock, if they really knew that that stock would appreciate considerably, do you think they would go on TV and tell everyone? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I think, Felix, you're getting to a deep point, right? And you're going to the heart of like the entire financial advice industry. So send the email to Felix. But, <laughs> oh, but I'm joking, Felix. I think you're right, which is, you know, one of the crazy parts about the last 20 or 30 years is we've convinced ourselves that markets are grossly inefficient. Mm-hmm. And if you just talk to the right person, that you'll get to be able to beat the market. Mm-hmm. You know, and the reality is, no, it's not. They're, they're roughly efficient. And certainly for the vast majority of people, 
they should be saving in relatively simple ways, which include indexation and include keeping fees low. Now, on the side, again, for consumption purposes, if you want to have some fun and you like want to go like, you know, buy some Peloton or short beyond me, you go, you, you know, you go do <laughs> to that. To pick a random example. Yes. <laughs> but you go, you know, you go do that, but don't pretend like you're being smart. Pretend like yeah. what it is, which is you're having some fun. Yeah. And that's great. And you may learn something. What is the biggest regret you have about the way, about a personal finance decision you've made? Do you remember when we talked about the financial freedom idea? Mm. I think that was sort of a, a watershed moment. Mm. Rather than thinking, you know, is there a job out there that would provide greater financial benefits? To just think much more sort of in a satisfying way. Mm. If you're happy with the way you live today, then what are the financial circumstances and mechanics that would allow you to continue to do that for as long as you expect to live? That was something that I hadn't really thought about quite that way. Mm. I wish I had thought in that particular fashion earlier mm. in my life. Yeah, that's really powerful, Felix. I think you're putting your finger on something that is true for me too, which is spending a lot of time thinking about maximizing versus thinking yes. about satisficing. Yeah. And I think in my life, probably I have spent too much time thinking about maximizing and not enough time thinking about satisficing. And, you know, for listeners who may not, those terms may not make as much sense, but, you know, in part, when you're maximizing, you're like, how do I get the most out of everything? And how do I make sure I have enough at the very end? And satisficing is more about, do we have some basic levels and do we have some basic needs met? That's, I think, a more powerful way to think about it. Mm -hmm. Spending less time maximizing and more time satisficing, I think, mm, is really interesting. I like that one. The one I would add is, um, so, you know, I guess it's been maybe 10, 15 years. The first time my husband and I, we did serious estate planning. We did our wills. I would have done it even sooner. There's something incredibly yeah, powerful about just going through everything and kind of taking stock of your life and trying to imagine a scenario where you had to leave your stuff behind and take care of the people that you want to take care of after you're gone. Yeah. In particular, if you have very young children, I think it's a really powerful, a little bit sobering moment where mm. it really forces you to think about the decisions you're making and how responsible you're being. You're raising such a deep point, young me, which is not just earlier, but Many people don't do it ever because it's so painful to do or so hard for some people to do. But just making sure you have a reasonable will and some plans in your estate and some reasonably good insurance. I think people delay thinking about those problems, young me, because it is, you know, you're confronting your mortality. Mm -hmm. Just doing it at all in any way is like so important. Mm -hmm. Your point is you're right. You should have done it earlier, yeah. but we should just acknowledge that many people never do it. And just doing that is so good. Yeah. One of the things I created was a document called Just In Case. Mm. And it's a letter to both of my kids, Just In Case. And it's very long because it literally lays out, here's the phone number you call, ask for this person. I mean, it just lays out mm. everything. Mm. And here's how to think about the house and just a bunch of advice. Mm. It's a powerful thing to put down on paper, I think. Well, it's interesting, young me, because, you know, you think about these books, like When Breath Becomes Air, which is like yes. these books oh, of goodness. people who are passing away, and then they write these letters to their children. But we should all be doing that, and yes. we should do it. In a way, it would be a fascinating compendium. Like, what are the letters you would write to these children? Not when you're on yeah. your deathbed, because then, obviously, <laughs> that's, a, that's a different kind of a thing. But that's a really powerful idea, I think. Yeah. Anyway, on that note, um, thanks, guys. 
Okay, Mihir, you wanted to talk about micro-influencers. You know, I always had the suspicion that you were secretly a social media influencer. Oh, yeah, that's just my <laughs> shtick. Yeah, exactly. I love that recent picture of you in the swimming trunk. Indeed. <laughs> I thought that Indeed. was really powerful. <laughs> I, I wanted to go out and buy the same ones, yeah, but exactly. then I couldn't find my size. I, mean, I can help you with that. I'll be branding my own swimwear soon enough. <laughs> so, yeah, so we have seen the rise of the micro-influencer. So, for a long time celebrities have been monetizing their influence on social media, but now it turns out you don't have to be a celebrity. You can merely cultivate your interest in a particular niche area Mm -hmm. and then become somebody with 30,000, 50,000 followers whose taste then becomes something that potentially can be monetized by marketers. So a couple of different questions to begin with. So first, Mm. let's say a young person comes to you and says, I want to try to make a living being a social media influencer, what would you say to them? Would you say, go for it? Is this a flash in the pan or is this like a sustainable marketing trend? Mahir's thinking about (laughs) resigning from HBS. Indeed. (laughs) I got a friend who's thinking about this thing, right? Quote, unquote, friend. (laughs) I got a friend who's thinking about becoming a social media influencer. As you know, Youngmi, this is so off-brand. Okay, go ahead. So what do you think? So I'd say if the emphasis in that sentence is make a living, I would probably caution the person to think very carefully about whether that's a good idea. If this is something you think, oh, I'm just going to try, I post on Instagram anyway, lots of my friends follow me because, say, I'm really into French fashion, and could I somehow try to build a business? I would be completely supportive. And to me, the difference, I think, also speaks to why were micro-influencers a good idea to begin with? I think the core of that idea that is really powerful is its word of mouth. Mm. The authenticity comes from the person actually using a particular set of products, having a good experience, and then talking to people that you have a relationship with about the kinds of experiences that you have that you love. But what has happened in the last couple of years, of course, is I think very different where we have now a sense that many of the influencers don't really use the products that they advertise themselves. We often have a sense that the accounts aren't even really personal accounts in any mm. real sense. So. At its core, this was something that was powerful exactly because it was personal. And then the moment it gets blown up, I think it loses some of its credibility and probably contributes to some of the skepticism that I think both Instagram users but also firms have about the marketing technique. Yeah. Young Me, what do you think? And what is this kind of doing to the marketing industry more generally? I think to Felix's point, the positive side is exactly what he described. There are some micro-influencers out there who have, you know, 10, 20,000 followers, and they've accumulated those followers in the most authentic way. Mm. And they've built really as close to genuine relationships you can have with 10,000 people. And so if they are willing to push your product, they have a lot of credibility. They can be really cost-effective for about 100 bucks. You can pay for an Instagram influencer with, say, 10,000 followers. Compare that to a mega influencer like Kim Kardashian, who probably gets a quarter of a million dollars for Mm -hmm. a Mm -hmm. post on Instagram. And then the other benefit is you can tap into these super niche markets. Let's say you want to sell kitchen knives. You can find someone who's a fanatic about household 
cutlery. The flip side, exactly what Felix said. It's become really saturated. There's a lot of noise. There's a lot of fake stuff out there. There's a lot of fake content out there. There's a lot of fake sponsorship out there. So let's say you're on Instagram and you have 10,000 followers and you don't have any sponsors. What you'll often find is that these influencers will pretend they pretend have Pretend to have a sponsor, yeah. <laughs> in order to gain credibility, yes. which is a little bit crazy. In fact, we should do that. We should, <laughs> <laughs> we should you know, a special thank you for LaCroix Water yeah. for letting us enjoy your beverage while we're right. taping this podcast. <laughs> Young me, I'm curious though, even in the genuine case, doesn't it get complicated when they become sponsors? And doesn't that change the authenticity? Is there some inherent contradiction here or is it a sustainable thing? Yeah. Look, at its best, social media is just people interacting with people. And so what that means is that there are people who are really high integrity about this and there are people who are less high integrity about this. And so the best ones are the ones that are careful about what they're willing to take money for. And they're Mm. only willing to endorse products that they really admire or believe in. And the reason for that is that they have such a small following that there's a lot to lose if they start to promote something crappy or if they start to over-promote things. And so the best ones are really transparent about what they're doing. And they'll say, hey, I've decided I want to pitch this. I've tried it. It's really great. They don't hide the fact they're being paid for it, but they're also very careful to only promote things they really believe in. So if a company came to me and said, hey, we're thinking of using micro-influencers to gain traction, I would caution them for sure. But if they're willing to do their homework and find the right influencers, then it can certainly be a piece of your marketing strategy. It shouldn't be the core of your marketing strategy, but it can be the piece of it. I don't know. There's something about this entire trend that I just absolutely love. You know, which is that in a way, this is kind of about the democratization of authority, right? So like instead of relying on Anna Wintour to tell you what to wear, like there's Tavi Gevinson who's going to tell you about what's fashionable. And I love that idea. Like I think that's like the promise of the internet is like we have authority now being distributed in this really kind of wide way. On the other hand, Mm. these young people who end up viewing themselves as micro-influencers – it all strikes me as kind of odd, right? Mm. So a lot of these micro-influencers are young and they kind of grow up trying to very early on kind of monetize their viewpoints. And that strikes me as an odd way to interact with the world. So I, I guess I'm curious if you think there's one piece of this, which is from the brand side, which is what we talked about. But even from these young people who are trying to do this, is there something about it that is true and genuine and can be fantastic? Or is there something about it that can actually maybe be problematic about the way social media is kind of governing their lives? If you think of this as like Uber... I'm going to drive a little bit for Uber. I'm going to sit on this platform and make a few extra dollars. You know, maybe that's fine. When there's so many drivers and you're depending on your livelihood for it, then it's a very different life. And in some ways, you can look at the micro-influencers as being essentially Uber drivers. I mean, this is sort of the new working class. Their living is based upon the whims of a platform they don't control. There's a ton of competition out there might have seemed glamorous in the beginning over time it becomes a real yeah. grind yeah. it's exhausting it's relentless at times humiliating and mm. the competition is such that it's only likely to get worse over time as opposed to better and so it's not an easy life at the same time sometimes you see so say maybe in the context of travel where someone discovers the joys of travel and then you also happen to be very good at taking photographs and you post them and you build a following 
And being an influencer might be one way to do this more often than you otherwise could. So there's sort of like the dark side that you just described. And then I think there's almost what you said earlier, Mihir, sort of the semi-professionalization or the democratization of activities that actually, unless you were hired by someone else in the travel industry, you couldn't really have done mm. that. And yeah. yes, you shouldn't be blue-eyed about just how intense competition is and how hard it is to really make a living that way. But if you, what I like about it is it's one of these arenas where you can really choose the intensity, I think. Yeah, in a way, it makes me think this is just a wonderful way to have an avocation. Like you just want to have some fun and you want to learn a lot about mm -hmm. fly fishing and you yeah. want to share that yeah. avocation with the world. But A, young me, to your point, when you turn it into a vocation, yeah. it's going to get complicated. And then B, sometimes some things are better left as an avocation. You know, <laughs> like sometimes mm -hmm. they're better left yeah. as like, let's yeah. have some fun and let's try to build a community. And there's something about monetization of that that becomes kind of problematic. One of the aspects of the trend that I don't like so much is, you know, it's always been true. We've researched, you know, 20 years going back that there's incredible returns to looking good, being beautiful. Yeah. It's always like your promotion probabilities, how likely it is that you get a job. And so it feels like that's something that's really exaggerated yeah. in a world of yeah. social media. The returns to being beautiful have just grown dramatically. This is why and, we were so smart to do a podcast. <laughs> I was just going to say, this is why podcasting is... Exactly. <laughs> I think the harder question, and this goes back to our maybe our TikTok conversation, which is if everybody is always performing in some mm -hmm. way in mm -hmm. the world, right? Um, we're all brands now, Mickey. Yeah, yeah, if everything's a performance and everything's a projection of an opinion onto the world, man, that's a hard way to live, especially when you're not well-formed as a human being. Mm. You know, it's a little bit different when you're older. But for young people, that is what worries me. Maybe we'll finish with this prediction. What year do you think our first president will be elected who has his or her start as a social media personality? Like where somebody who's really built themselves up through social media, that person ends up becoming... a serious candidate. Yeah. When do you think that'll I th happen? I think in 2024. I think not in this cycle, but in the next cycle, the 2024 cycle, we will see the first social media influencer become a serious candidate for president. That's my prediction. Wow. I think it's 30 years later. And the reason, it, the reason is that, what's the average age of being a candidate in the U.S.? 70-something. Kim Kardashian is getting a law degree. Okay, that means 2024, she will be fully primed, ready to go. What do you think, Mihir? I think it's fundamentally a complementary technology. There will be candidates who will use it really well, but can the source of their rise be that thing? I don't know if that's going to happen in the next 30 years. PewDiePie. Could be. Running for president, 2024. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll return to this soon. Okay, Hicks, me here. You want to go first? Sure. I know I'm going to get heat for this because uh, I'll be called a fanboy, but that's okay. I'm going to persevere. So first, the new AirPods are amazing. <laughs> they are absolutely spectacular. <laughs> 
The noise cancellation is amazing. That's not exactly my pick, but I just want to put that in the ground. <laughs> my pick, though, is for you know, AirPods. People are going to think that you're getting sponsored. Well, They're going to think this is a sponsorship. Have I revealed my social media influencer, my micro-influencer contract with Apple? I guess not. <laughs> okay. okay, but here's my real pick, which is AirPod cases. There are a variety of them, but I'll choose Catalyst. If you're going to get an AirPod, get an AirPod case. Because what? <laughs> Why do you need a case for your case? Oh my the god! AirPods come I know. With a case. So I know. This is crazy. Buy a it's case for it's the so case. meta, right? It's like an accessory to an accessory to an accessory. But here's what happens: I lose them because they're white and they tend to oh blend in god. with everything. And like I've left them in hotel rooms. I've done all kinds of things. So here you have a case, and you can also then hook them onto your keychain or oh hook god. them onto your bag and never lose them. Have you not ever lost AirPods, young me? No, I have not. Why well, just keep track of... Are you one of those people that needs to put a big safety pin on all of your clothes so you don't lose your clothes at the gym? And- no, no, no. But AirPods are small and they're in your pocket and they can go all kinds of places. So I am going to recommend Catalyst AirPod cases with a side mention of how fantastic the new AirPod Pros are. There you go. <laughs> okay. All right. So my recommendation actually came from a few listeners So a couple of weeks ago, as part of our entertainment episode, we were talking about... You signed on to British Bake Show. You just signed on to the British Bake Show, didn't you? No, no. Go ahead, young me. Recommend it. I know you want to. This is about audio, (laughs) about how audio has become this big thing. So a number of listeners wrote in and mentioned that they listened to the audio version of The Economist. And so I've tried it. And my reaction is really mixed, but I'm still going to recommend it. It's... (sighs) The voices aren't great. The user-friendliness of it leaves a lot to be desired. But it can be really handy at times. And I think it's probably going to get better over time. I can imagine it getting much better. And so the audio version of The Economist. Fantastic. Okay. I have a listening recommendation as well. It's not exactly a secret. It's a show called The Marketplace. And it's produced by public radio. Mm -hmm. If you want to know what happened on any single day in 30 minutes from a financial business kind of perspective, I think it's just absolutely fabulous. It brings together the main stories. And they have this really great ability to sort of zoom out where you talk about, you know, big monetary trends and then also zoom in. So how does the trade war affect a particular business in Florida importing some part from China or somewhere else from the world? And so it's of this zooming in and zooming out, I think is something that they do really well. In addition, the main person usually hosting the show, Kai Ristal, I think he's just absolutely fantastic. He's funny. He's lighthearted. Whenever I can, I listen to it every day. And I always feel a little better informed, a little smarter. Mm. It's a really enjoyable experience. So if you haven't had a chance to tune in at Marketplace, produced by Public Radio. Ah, oh, fantastic. That sounds That's great. That's a nice one. Okay. There's a lot of audio stuff going on. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah, all three of ours were listening. Right? I know. Here's was telling. a case for a case. Okay. <laughs> Try it. It'll be fantastic. All right, time to bundle up and hit the outdoors. That's it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network.
Support for the show comes from Economist Education. On After Hours, we've discussed how powerful and impactful it can be to use data to share complex stories. And Economist Education has a new course on data storytelling and visualization that I highly recommend. It's super fascinating stuff. And you can discover how to find, collect, and analyze data, harness it to craft a compelling message or narrative. These courses last about two to six weeks. They are online programs designed to empower you. Economist education is a great way to stay ahead in your career, and I have a special offer to get you started. You can get 15% off any course from Economist education only available by going to our exclusive URL, education.economist.com slash after hours, and enter my promo code after hours at registration. This offer ends on March 31st, so don't wait. For 15% off, go now to education.economist.com slash after hours and use promo code after hours at registration.